And the feedback I'll get from the parents is, our kids never talk to us that way. How did you get them to do that? Lee Benson is the author of Value Creation Kid, The Healthy Struggles Your Children Need to Succeed. Growing up in a low-income family, Lee went from pulling weeds for 25 cents an hour to founding and selling multiple successful companies. And by the end of these discussions, they've gone from, I'm a victim and I'll probably never amount to much, to I can start anywhere and go everywhere. What is the downside to protecting kids from adversity? How do we create opportunities for our children to grow and eventually prosper on their own? And what role should the government play in all of this? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Benson, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's great to be here with you, Jan. Thank you. A mutual friend of ours made me aware of a book you've recently written, Value Creation Kid. And, you know, when I first heard the title, I have to say, I thought, why are you, what is this about? Why are you, why are you recommending this book to me? You know, and then I read the subtitle, and I'll, I'll actually read it here, The, the Healthy Struggles your, your Children Need to Succeed. And then I thought to myself, oh, okay. <laughs> in our society today, um, there's a lot of focus on victimhood, frankly. Um, that's being taught in any schools. I find it incredibly concerning. I feel people that are taught to think this way about themselves won't have a means, however, it might, however much it might be true, won't have a means even to empower themselves because they've been taught that way. I'm very concerned about it. You've come up with a whole methodology which you've actually applied to help deal with this, right? And this is something I think I want to start covering more on American Thought Leaders episodes is, is you know, how, how do we deal with the, some of the madness of our times? So why don't you tell me a little bit? I think what you're talking about there becomes an excuse for not achieving anything. I'm a victim, it's not my fault I'm here, I come from a low-income family, um, I'll never go to college, therefore I don't have to really apply myself. And I meet people all, all the time that would say, um, I've gone out of my way to take all the struggle away from my kids. Um, I don't want them to have to experience what I experience. And I'll ask, and this is, this is a story from um, probably two months ago. So how's that going? Well, I have, I have two sons and they both live in the basement. One is 23, one is 27. And I don't see any way they're ever gonna be able to move out. So this particular, uh, you know, parent, the, the father, took all the struggle away from the kids and, and with the best of intentions, thought he was doing amazing things. And, and so what we need to get at is to, to embrace this concept of struggle is actually really good and trust it. And, and if I back all the way up, so this isn't something I just came up with. Uh, when I was seven years old, I was approached by a neighbor, um, unsolicited, and she asked, would you be willing to pull weeds in my garden for 25 cents an hour? And back then, 25 cents, I could buy two candy bars and have change. I mean, it was worth a lot back then. And so I started doing that. It was hard work. And I was thinking, you know, every couple of weeks I'd go over and do this. There's got to be a better way, even though I really appreciated this. And I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and we had a lot of snow back then in the winter times. And, and I started asking folks, hey, can I shovel your driveway and sidewalk? And I would get 50 cents to do that and it would take me only about a half hour to do each one. So I just fourfolded my money. And then next I got a paper route and then I had a couple of paper routes and then that just kept going. So I started on what I'm calling this value creation cycle. So I would struggle to get a capability which would build my confidence and I wouldn't stop there. I'd use that to actually create value. And, and then eventually um, a dishwasher, a busboy and a cook 
And I came from a low-income family. I was actually kicked out of the house the beginning of my senior year in high school. And it was a non-event because I was already not only financially competent, I was financially independent. A non-event for me to get my own apartment two days later. I spent one night in my truck, no big deal. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me, you know, going through that. Uh, but again, starting at seven years old, embracing this value creation struggle cycle, there was nothing I thought I couldn't accomplish. And I didn't feel like a victim when that happened to me. It was kind of a toxic and dangerous environment. You know, the family environment I grew up in, have a younger brother in and out of prison four times before I lost touch with him intentionally, um, and a lot of other family members that just really weren't good people. So even with all of that going on, this outside world of creating value and taking bigger and bigger steps each time saved me. In, in the biggest possible way. And my, my, my siblings, um, some of them didn't fare so well uh, because they stayed in that environment and they didn't have this external value creation way of looking at the world. So it, it saved me and I think it can save a lot of kids. These days when you think about struggle, right? I, there's some ways I don't like that word because I think of struggle sessions from you know communist China or you know, other, other places, but. Sure. Um, but that's very different. You make the distinction between struggle, healthy struggle, and trauma, which you know you've talked to, you've you've experienced, and frankly, a lot of people have experienced and have to deal with. So, kind of explain that distinction. I think it's very important. Yeah, healthy struggle would be I want a capability. It's going to be a lot of work to get it. You know, I think early on, um, I'm on my seventh business that I've started from scratch. One of them was an FAA repair station, and I had never written an FAA repair manual before. I'd never had interfaced with the government, but I went through the struggle of figuring out how to get that capability. I built my confidence, and I created even more value from that. That's an example of an adult going through a healthy struggle. For a child, the healthy struggle could be just learning how to uh, make and manage money. You know, how do I earn it? How do I save it? How do I give it? How do I share it, et cetera? So this is a capability that they'd, they'd want to go after. So that, those are examples, you know, you know, simple examples of healthy struggles. Now, trauma is something that happens that's not, that's not good. Uh, you know, a lot of kids are abused, as an example. That, that's not good. Uh, you know, a, a, adults can run into terrible situations. They could get, you know, mugged or, uh, you know, something that they, they struggle through in the aftermath of all of that. That's not a healthy struggle. Um, but I, I also believe that every single struggle, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, uh, can be used to create more value in the world. It can be leveraged to create more value. Healthy is the ideal. On the unhealthy side, it allows you to understand uh, when other people are going through the same thing and help them through it, which I think is wildly valuable. You know, I don't know why this is, the, I keep thinking about this, but when you keep talking about creating value, I can't help but associate it with money. But that's not what you're talking about, right? And that, that's what I, I mean, it could be, right? It could be. But it's, it's actually a much bigger concept. It's like, can I'm creating something that will be good for others, good for the world, good for your community, right? And sort of focusing your life around that, that's what value creation means. It, 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 I've got that right, right? Yeah. Um, you, you, you do. And when I think about value creation, there's, there's three main buckets, and we talk a lot about this in the book. There's material value creation, there's emotional energy value creation, and there's spiritual value creation. And so figure out which bucket or combination of buckets that you want to create value in. 
And a lot of folks would say that time is as scarce as commodity, you never get it back. And for me, uh, for decades now, the scarcest commodity on the planet is positive emotional energy. When it's running on nine or 10, all kinds of bad things can happen. Obstacles come up, no big deal. I'm gonna blow through it and it's gonna be amazing. When it's running on one, you know, you get a flat tire and it ruins your week. And so I, I think that's probably the most powerful bucket of value creation because it supercharges everything if you can maintain high positive emotional energy. And to, and to take it a little bit further, when you interact with groups, are you the person that takes the energy out of the room or do you give it? And so I think about my co-author, Scott Donald, in this book, and he's the kind of guy with this amazing positive energy. He wants everybody to win, and I just watch everybody gravitate towards him. That's fantastic. So he's generating positive emotional energy. Well, I'll share a moment. I'm just remembering a, a moment uh, from you know a couple of years ago when I saw this a, a friend of mine, some a coworker walking down the street, obviously, like weight of the world on his shoulders, you know, very, obviously very difficult moment. I was feeling like that. I was feeling exactly like that. I see him coming down the road and I'm like, okay, there's no way I can look like this when I pass this guy. I have to be. So I was like, hey, how you doing? You know, very, very, just gave, gave everything I could to just to give him kind of a positive moment. But what that actually did for me is actually elevated me. That was my observation afterwards, right? And I, I, I think there's something to what you're saying here. Yeah, and it, it, there really is. So you, you look at the emotional energy piece of it, material um, value could be money, things that you accumulate, et cetera. Some people are really good at that. The spiritual side is gonna be different for everyone. Um, it could be you know, very, very strong based in the religion that you're part of, or it could just be a, a connection to something greater, but that's, that's different for everyone. And I think every single child out there has a value creation superpower that they've yet to fully discover because most families don't really talk about that. In the, in the book, we um, outlined something called the gravy stack method. And the reason we wanted to make it a method and the biggest thing that I would love to do with this book and this movement that we want to turn it into is to operationalize value creation within the family. And there's four parts to it, um, and we want to make it super easy. So I've, I've got a number of friends that um, you know, are in the low-income family um, category and, and a lot in the middle-income family category. So how can a low-income low family with both parents working two jobs even have time to read the book, let alone do anything? So this is, this is the challenge. So how do we make it really simple where anybody can DIY it? And the four parts, first is value creation. How do you talk about it with the kids? It's what I just sort of went through. And, and you, you should start that immediately, you know, at really at any age before kindergarten, you know, talking about these things. And the second part is um, house rules. What's your job for the family? You know, what are the expectations of you as a child um, as you get older, you know, they, they advance. Um, and then you've got the... Um, uh, you know, is essentially how you would earn extra money um, in there. And, and so as you're, as you're looking at this and, and the child's sort of advancing, you've, you've got the expectations. We also look at expenses. So as they, as they get older, they pick up more of their own expenses. So this is sort of the house rules piece of it. And then we have financial competency. It's not just financial literacy. Learning about this stuff without applying it doesn't really matter at all. And then the last part is healthy struggle. So how do we design healthy struggles for our children so they can build these skills over time? 
And if, if the foundation to leading the lifestyle that you want is to be financially competent so you can support it, not everybody needs to be a millionaire or a billionaire or any of that, but you want to lead the lifestyle you want, so it's important to have it. How do we build them into that? So if we're teaching them over time, you have a job for the family, and these are the things we're expecting you to do. You make your bed, you brush your teeth, you do your homework, et cetera. Um, and, then, and then you've got um, these expenses that you're going to be picking up. Well, you can't pick up expenses if you haven't learned how to actually earn money. So let's give them jobs that can be, we call them um, um, action gigs and brain gigs. So an action gig is um, we'll pay you extra money to wash the car, but we're not gonna pay you any more than I could get it done down the street at the car wash. It's gotta be fair market value to teach those lessons. So as the money comes in, they can pick up their expenses. Now they're learning this. This isn't something we can explain once, but if you create this sort of way the family operates, They'll start discovering their superpower. They'll learn how to make and manage money. And by the time they're launched into adulthood, they're going to be financially competent. And if they want to be, as financially independent like I was as well. Well, and so, and you've actually, you know, been doing this. This isn't just theoretical, right? And this is, this Correct. is an, an important part. Like you, uh, so, so tell me about that. How, 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 has this, uh, how has this been operationalized, I guess, among, you know, people? I mean, as a, well, from, from my background and kind of walking, walking through it, uh, you know, starting young, and I, I kind of went through that. Um, when I was kicked out of the house in high school, I started playing in a rock and roll band. So my first, and I don't even count it as one of the seven, but my first real business was playing in a band. And in the 1980s, there were a couple of years where we played over 300 nights each of those years. Uh, concerts, you know, covers, um, our own original stuff. It's how I made most of my money back then. And, and so when I think about, you know, struggle to get a capability, to build confidence, use that to create value, I took that and then, you know, from the band started an aerospace business and then two more aerospace related businesses and then a few others along the way. I was just thinking about how can I create more and more and more value over time. And, I'm not sure wh whether I've created more material value um, or emotional energy value, but I, I do know I keep thinking about taking bigger steps going forward, and so that's how the journey is supposed to work. And so interestingly, when I talk to adults about the concepts in the book around healthy struggle and all that, that makes so much sense. Every family should do this, and yet I'll watch these adults that are running businesses and something doesn't go perfect, and it's always because they didn't have the capability, almost always, uh, to do this thing well. And they act like a victim rather than embracing this healthy struggle for the adult to get this capability to navigate this challenging time better next time it comes up in their business uh, to build their confidence so they can use that to create even more value. So people get the concept, Jan, but they don't understand how to really apply it. And I think talking about something is one thing. And like I say in my first book, your most important number, you've developed a strategy or you know what you want to do. Congratulations, you're 3% of the way there. 97% is actually doing it. Well, and it's also, you know, as you're saying this, it's like a muscle. You have to kind of, you have to try it. You have to remind yourself. You have to, oh, I just fell into, you know, thinking, feeling like I'm a victim. Actually, this is a great opportunity. Let's dive into this. Let's see how we can solve this, right? And then after a while, it just becomes the way you do it as opposed to, you know, falling back. So 
it, it, I was thinking about healthy struggle. I mean, sport is the obvious, right? Kind of becoming better at sport or music or something is an example of health, healthy struggle, right? Yeah, that, yeah music's a, a great piece. You, you want to convey emotion through what you're doing, either you're writing or even playing other people's songs. When you, when you convey the emotion, um, you have to be in really good shape so you're not thinking about what you're doing. So I, I'm a guitar player and I have 50 plus guitars around and all of them I purchase to play. I'm, I'm not really a collector, I just like the way they sound or I perform, and I perform with them. Um, in the better shape I'm in, the more emotion I can convey. And so thinking about emotional energy, I was in an event uh, this last summer that an, an artist by the name of Steve I put on and they call it a guitar camp. And so for five days, 150 guitar players are there and he invites Tommy Emmanuel. And I'm thinking, wow, this, this is literally maybe one of the best, if not the best guitar player on the planet. And he comes out, he does a rendition of a Beatles song on the acoustic guitar. And this guy will talk about how intentionally he's pushing the envelope of how to convey emotion through the instrument. He plays the song and I'm fighting back, trying not to tear up and, and cry. And I'm looking around at everybody's crying. And our host, Steve, comes up on stage probably five minutes late and says, I'm sorry, I was looking for boxes of Kleenex. I couldn't stop crying listening to it. That, that's amazing, right? I mean, think, thinking about you know, a healthy struggle to get to that point where you can convey that motion, emotion. And then in talking to Tommy Emanuel afterwards, he said, yeah, I'm not even close to where I know I can be. So you, you get on this track to create value, whether it's material, emotional, or spiritual, and you wanna create more and more value each time, I theorize and fully believe that once you get on that road, you will never get off. Well, so, and what is the role of humility since we're talking about that now in all of this? What is the role of humi humility around this? Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's sort of interesting. I've never been asked that question before. <laughs> um, wildly important, I would think. I mean, I, I think the, the more value you create, the more humility we need to exhibit, you know, going forward. Um, I, I would, n I'd never like being put on a pedestal at all. And I diffuse that pretty quickly because you'll always let somebody down going through. But if you're trying to connect and help other people create value, I think humility is a giant part of being able to fully connect and be there for them so they can do it. Well, it just, it just struck me that, that I bet some of the reason that he was so effective, right, uh, is that he also realized that he wasn't near his, near his pinnacle. You know that this was he was just on this um, part of part of the journey. That's just that's just my my hypothesis. Well, I, I think that's you know? right. And and what I observed about him, he came in the room. He treated everybody the same. Walked into the crowd, shook everybody's hand that was around him, and he he was just incredible. And for somebody that accomplished, I've seen a lot of folks that are very accomplished that don't treat other people uh, very nicely. <laughs> You know, when I asked you earlier about, uh, you know, some kind of the practical obligations, you have actually shared this methodology with any number of families who have actually been applying it. And I just, I guess I want to hear a bit about that. Like, how, how has that gone? You have a whole methodology that you're applying and yeah. a whole system, right? Yeah, and, and this is fairly new in the last year, kind of rolling out and testing this and doing research for the book. and you know, what will work in the real world with real people, um, especially low and middle income families. And, and so far going through it, uh, you know, one, one example, but my, my f actually favorite one, I texted um, uh, a friend of mine, low income family, uh, three kids, 
how's it going? You're trying this stuff. And she texts me back a picture of a stack of books that she bought online to give to all of her friends. And it's working really well. And just having these conversations uh, with the kids and these families, it's changing everything. I'll have uh, you know friends come over and I'll spend time with their children and I'll start talking about, hey, what's your job? And here's what my job is in the, in the family here in this household. And and what kind of value do you want to create in the world? And, and I bet you have a value creation superpower. What is that? And, and the feedback I'll get from the parents is our kids never talk to us that way. How did you get them to do that? I just changed the language a little bit and you can absolutely do it. So, so far, so good. And one of the things that um, Scott Donnell and I have, have done here is we've created a, uh, an app called the, the Gravy Stack app. And it's just to make it easy uh, to, to manage all this stuff, although you don't need it. You can totally DIY this uh, within families. And, and this, this whole concept for me and why it's so important started back working with so many different businesses, my own companies, and how do we create an environment where adults discover their value creation superpower, where you know you got it right when every single team member is acting like the CEO of their own role. That's amazing. And I used to get comments back in the day before I went out working with a lot of additional businesses uh, where people would say, what are you guys doing here? Because I walk around every, every employee, and one of my businesses had over 500 employees, they all know the numbers, they look you dead in the eye, they talk about the value that they're creating. It's like you never see this anywhere. And then you walk through, you're the CEO, you know all their names, you know all their numbers, you know what they're doing, they approach you, they're excited to be talking about what they're doing. So, well, isn't this how it's supposed to be everywhere? So learning about that, and now how do we start all the way at the front end uh, with the kids, you know, K through 12, wouldn't it be really nice if right out of the gate, we're talking about the purpose of an education to be creating value in the world, not getting a good grade, getting a diploma, getting a degree, getting a job. So people are doing what they think they're supposed to do instead of what they really want to do because they discovered their value creation superpowers. So if we could start that early on and they're playing with value creation in two or three of the buckets, now why they're learning becomes really obvious. So what to learn, they, over time, they can start to guide that even more. And now how to learn makes a lot more sense because I want to I go faster you know, in there. So that's kind of kind of my dream, uh, you know, working backwards from what would a, a graduating high school senior look like as they're being launched into adulthood? What would be ideal? Uh, they can think critically. They understand the, the power and value of a healthy community and they want to build those things. They're financially competent, if, as financially independent as they want to be. And I can go down a, a short list there. That would be incredible, and I think that would make a giant difference in the world if we could launch more kids that way. Well, and I think it's particularly relevant, uh, you know, in our current, you know, socio-political, cultural moment, right? Um, I mean, what 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 do you make of our times right now, right? I mean, you're, you you were talking about some amazing, hopeful, you know, get families to empower themselves, focus on value creation in these different buckets. There's a lot of there's a lot of families and a lot of kids that are you know in a completely different world right now, right? Yeah. What do you make of this? For me, it's about perspective, and 
I've, I've spoken to thousands of high school seniors about the virtues of entrepreneurship because I believe anybody that creates a job is a hero of mine because that's one more person that can contribute to supporting their families, which is fantastic. And, and when I think about perspective, um, one of the charter schools in Arizona, I went to speak to a, a small group of seniors and a lot of the kids were talking about in the beginning of the session, this is a 90 minute discussion that I have with them, is that they'll probably never be able to start a business, never go to college, um, they're kind of a victim and there's, there's all this stuff going on. And I noticed this one um, young woman shaking her head and I asked, well, what's going on with you? And, and she looks around at the rest of the classmates and says, you know, I'm from Tanzania and you have 99 times the opportunity I had um, in my home country. So I feel like I can do anything here. And by the end of these discussions, you know, the kids are typically saying, they've, they've gone from I'm a victim and I'll probably never amount to much to I can start anywhere and go everywhere. And you know, because we're talking about in, in these sessions, uh, the, the context is, is starting and running a business and building it over time. Hmm. Um, I, I, uh, I share with them how I think about it. And so if you're gonna run a business, the environment uh, within which you're running this business is largely gonna be created by the policies of our elected officials. And so you want tailwinds to give you help. You don't want headwinds to constantly hold you back. And so I tell them, I think voting is really important. I have a process for voting and I encourage you to have a process for voting as well. And they ask me, well, what's your process? And I go through it and I say, okay, well, anything or person that I vote for, I want them to net move these needles or pillars in the right direction. And there's six of them. It's free people, free markets, personal responsibility, protection from uninitiated force, only voluntary relationships, and the last one, elevating self-esteem. And the ones the kids ask me about the most is, what do you mean by only voluntary relationships? And I say, well, would you like to be forced to do anything against your will? Well, no, no way. I said, well, one example of uh, an, an involuntary relationship would be income taxes. So when I go through this over um, at that time, it's, you know, in the past 20 years, I've probably paid a million dollars or more in federal income tax alone every year. And if I don't pay it, somebody will come eventually get me and throw me in jail. So that's not a voluntary relationship. And well, what, what would be better? And I said, well, a consumption tax would be a lot better. And I think our government should be doing things to continually improve citizenry experience and return on taxpayer investment. The experience gets better and the relative um, cost goes down, just like in the real world. You know, more value, best value wins, all of it. So we go, we go through all of that and, and uh, a lot of the teachers would say, well, nobody's ever explained it this way. And this, this really makes a lot of sense. And I said, yeah, well, this is my process. And, and I encourage you to have your own process. And I said, typically my only option is voting for people or things that will move it in the wrong direction the slowest. But ideally I want it to go in the right direction. And quite a number of kids would say, well, our process is our teachers tell us to vote Democrat no matter what. I said, well, congratulations, you have a process. Most people don't actually have one, but I would encourage you to develop a voting process that creates better conditions to work, live, learn, and play for your family, the communities you engage with, and uh, groups that you're part of, um, et cetera. And I'm always clear, and this is completely right, I'm, I'm not affiliated with any party. I'm for better conditions to work, live, learn, and play. And I think both of our main parties today could do a lot better job of, of making those things happen. 
Well, you know, listening to you and, you know, you using that one particular example, I can't help but think that over the last few years, you know, how many small businesses were lost and, you know, how much power was centralized and how much involuntary um, behavior was coerced. I mean, so let me go back to the question, like, what do you make of this? Well, I, I think the biggest challenge is the incentive structures that we have in our federal government and state government, local, et cetera. And somehow we need to take those things away. So what's really the goal? When I, when I watch the news coverage, mainstream media on you know, these election years, it's all about who's going to win instead of who's gonna create better conditions to work, live, learn, and play for all the people that live in this country. And, it and how, I guess, how are they going to do it, and, right? And, and, yeah. yeah, but all they seem to care about, the media, is they need to do this if they want to win. They need to do that if they want to win. And it's like, oh my gosh, you're completely missing the whole point here. And so I, I, I look at it, and I'm super thankful for the founding documents that made this country so amazing. Because when you have separation of powers, rule of law, um, you know, all, all of this stuff, the Constitution, all of this stuff or the rules of engagement you know, uh, within all of us are operating, as long as they're solid, it doesn't allow it to go too far. What really concerns me the most today is that those things get blown up and then we've completely lost this country. And I think about larger, larger companies where they're just knocking it out of the park, creating all kinds of shareholder value. It's absolutely amazing. Change the leader and everything just dives because the leader changed the rules of engagement. And, and so that's, what I, that's my biggest fear for this country is that somehow our, our rules of engagement, the founding documents and all of that get, get completely blown up. It just strikes me that, uh, you know, it seems like a, there's some, a whole number of very large corporations get a lot of advantage, right? Even versus, you know, this, you know, what I probably you would agree is the, um, you know, wellspring of innovation, which is really small business, right, in, in America. I don't know if you agree. I'm just guessing from everything you said I, up I, now. I do, I do agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think to a large degree, these larger corporations, they're in collusion with government. And so this is crony capitalism. And now a worse form of capitalism is woke capitalism. You know, that's why I always say I wish we called it value creationism, where best value wins. It's an equitable playing field. Uh, that's, that's not what we have. If we could write legislation that would go in and scour every agency at the federal level, the state, the county, the, the local level, um, would scour every one of these um, organizations or institutions for any unhealthy incentives and wipe them out, make it illegal to do it, that's the most important thing we could do. But it's kind of hard to get the folks that are playing the game to actually do that, right? Tim, break this down for me. Unhealthy incentives. What exactly would this, let's say, AI, because we have them these days, that they could possibly do this. What would they be looking for exactly? Um, any, any conflict of interest. So I, I personally believe if there's a public union, they shouldn't be able to give a bunch of money to folks that are creating the conditions for the members of the union. That's, an, that's a perfect example. Uh, and, and it's everywhere. You look at our health agencies, the, the NIH, and... Um, I haven't thought and looked into this nearly as deeply as you have. They should not be able to invest their employees in 
organizations, big pharma or anything else that's going to give them any kind of a kickback, you know, directly or, th or through their investments. Our, our um, uh, congressmen and women, that they, they shouldn't, I don't think they should be allowed to invest in, in corporations that they regulate. You, you, could, you could really go on and on. And, and it's fascinating to me because even in the sort of elite uh, Republican or Democrat environments, you know, here in the state, uh, a lot of these folks are talked about and held in the highest regard and integrity and everything else. And I sit back and watch them. If offered the right incentives, they'll fully embrace crony capitalism, which makes it makes conditions worse to work, live, learn, and play for the rest of the citizens here. It almost seems like it's it's almost always about the money, and money's not a bad thing. Um, I I think of money as just accumulated best efforts. So any money I have in the bank, I put in all these efforts. I was able to save some. That's great. That's great. I can trade my best efforts for somebody else's accumulated best efforts. That's all it is to me. But it should be, in my opinion, an equitable playing field if we really want to get the most value out of this country and, you know, for that matter, every other country on the planet. Wouldn't it be amazing if every country thought this way? I, I, I think it would. It's, oh but there's gosh. a question of there's a question of, frankly, morality, right? That's what it comes down to. If you're talking about you know folks that you know have it good and decide, hey, I just I'm going to make it better for myself, even if it's at the expense of these others, right? That that's the thinking du jour, so to speak. Uh, well, here's what I think they don't get. Um, I've had a lot of folks over time say, oh, what I've done in my businesses for my employees. In one of them, I put in a 10,000 square foot gym, had full-time tr full trainers six days a week, gave them more money if they trained two days a week in their paycheck, if they brought their family members, put even more money in their paycheck, did, did that and so many other things. And it cost a fair amount of money to do it. And most, most other business leaders would say, oh, we can't afford that, we would never do it. I mean, this is just one example. So you don't understand, um, we, we've grown faster than you, we make a lot more money than you do because we do these things. And so when you think about win-win value creation, you can, you can make a whole lot more over time and you can sustain that and you can, you can, you can scale it, you can accelerate it when you're thinking win-win exchange of value as opposed to win-lose and feeling good about that because the losers won't hang out very long. So I've always thought if they really understood this concept and they got on that track for a little bit, they would never get off because that's really where they would make the best returns if financial returns are important to them over the long run. You know, I wonder if this isn't a thing, I, this is something I've been thinking about lately. I wonder if we haven't, you know, as a society, somehow embraced this win-lose dichotomy, like that win-win isn't really a thing. It's not a win unless the other person loses. And I see that, you know, in, in for example, in communist China, that is how the leadership views its success and failure. The other side has to lose. It's just, it's baked in. I wonder if somehow as a society we haven't kind of bought into that to some extent. Yeah, I think there's a fair amount of it. And when people feel good that somebody else lost, I don't feel good when somebody else loses. Even if I'm not really particularly fond of those folks, that's not making the world a better place. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's really not helpful. And I get to work with a lot of organizations and every month I usually pick up a couple more um, companies that I work with. And when I talk about value creation, it's not uncommon for the senior team to say, well, it can't just be about the money because I go in and I say, well, what's the one number that says above all others for the organization that you're winning or losing the game? 
and that will drive the majority of the right behaviors. And in the for-profit world, it's typically cash flow or some version of, of profit. And there's, well, it can't just be that, and it's gotta be about you don't care about people, you don't care about culture. No, you don't understand. All the other things are subordinate to it. If the people aren't happy and winning the team members and advancing and all those things, then you're not gonna optimize the profit piece of it. If our clients aren't happy, that, that's not gonna happen. This is about holistic value creation for the organization, a lot like the book for holistic value creation for a family of any type or size and how you run after it. And it doesn't take very long to get their heads around, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. But we've just been taught that money's bad, but I believe that's sort of a form of virtue signaling because they really want the money too in every case that I've seen. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's, that's very interesting, uh, a very interesting observation. It does come down to this idea, though, that this idea that the value creation, creating something that's good for others, it, it, is, it is really the value of positive value creation for the community that is at the root of this, isn't it? So it's really, it's really a kind of morality. Am I getting this right? You know? I, it, it is, and, and it's a win for everybody going that direction. When people use terms like altruistic, selfless, I say, well, don't you do things that are in your own best self-interest, whether for this life or the next, depending on your beliefs? Well, yes. So by definition, you're selfish, right? So selfish isn't a bad thing, but you can be win-win selfish or you can be win-lose. Hmm. And so the more win-win we are, more things will accrete to you and more opportunities expose themselves. And uh, yeah, I, I do things to create value for as many people and organizations as I can, and that exposes me to opportunities I otherwise wouldn't have available. So one, I feel really good when I help, even if there's no financial reward or anything else. So selfishly, I want to feel good. Oops, you know, that, that's, I think that's really a good thing. Um, and, and more people are bringing opportunities to me, and I, I love that. I mean, I just absolutely love it. So I, I just think it's a way to create value faster in the world where people have to understand it, get on that, on that trail or road for a while to go, oh my gosh, this, this actually, actually really works. So one of the things I've noticed talking to people in all sorts of different communities in America and frankly in Canada, my home country and other places as well now that I think about it, there's a lot of people that have just been very kind of demoralized. They don't appreciate what they have. We talked about this a little bit in this interview. Um, and they don't see a lot of hope for the future and they don't see the promise of their country. And it might be hard for them to see promise in, you know, an educational method like the one you're proposing here or an approach. Do you have any thoughts on how to get through to those people? That is, that's such a big question. Uh, like when I talk to the kids, um, what would it be like if your purpose in life, your primary motivation was the value you created, not external things like TikTok likes or you know being part of the special club or anything else. Now all of a sudden when you're down this road of creating value, you develop this intrinsic motivation and you don't, you're not really you know, subjected or, or, or influenced so much by external forces trying to bring you down. But if you're not on the path of creating value and really going down that road, it's easy to be too influenced by what's going on out there. So 
once you start on this road, I, I, any, anyone, you know, a child or an adult, um, I believe that everything will get better. And, and I, I believe the bad that's going on in the world, it's a pretty small part of the population. So let's not let the 3% or 5% at most take down the 95%. That doesn't make sense. In what you say makes perfect sense to me. I just, I guess what I'm thinking is, do you have any thoughts on how we might reach those people who have been so-called blackpilled, right? And they're not, it's hard for them to think about things this way, right? How can I empower myself? How can I create this positive change? It's, it's, it's a very different, it's almost like a nihilistic form of thinking. I keep encountering this. You probably do as well. So how, how do we get through to those people? I mean, th it's not an easy answer. I realize I, that, it, right? It's, it's not an easy answer. And I, I, I talk to lots of groups. I'll even host regular um, you know, think tanks around certain topics like K-12 education and other things in my studio. And I want to talk about what's possible and productive ways to get there. The majority of folks out there, unfortunately, because of the culture in this country right now, if I want to know more about why something um, or something won't work or what's wrong with people or why it won't work, whatever, um, that's, that's all they want to talk about is just to, to go after it. And I usually say, okay, that's fine. We can admire the problem as much as you want to, but what would the ideal state look like? And, and how could we actually get there? I'm able to change the discussion to go in that direction. If somebody just wants to complain and again, you know, um, admire the problem, I think it's a great way to say it, that's okay, but every minute you spend doing that is one minute that you're not creating value in the world. You're not helping somebody else. So it, it's, it's all in perspective, and I don't think I'm gonna have three or four sentences here that are gonna, that are gonna change everybody, but if you think about how do I create value in the world, what is my value creation superpower, when I come into a room, start with emotional energy. Don't be the person that takes the room down. Be the person that lifts the room up. Start there. And as you start elevating your own, it'll supercharge anything else you want to do when it comes to creating value in your life and the communities that you're part of. So, Lee, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, you know, as we finish up, I want to touch on something that, that really struck me uh, in the book. And you, you make this distinction between happiness and joy, right? And you know, a lot of people today will say, you know, what is the meaning of life? Why, what, what, do you, what do you want in life? I want to be happy, you know, in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? But you make this distinction, and I thought that was interesting and poignant, and maybe tell me a little bit about this, yeah. Yeah, I, I've listened to a lot of speakers, uh, uh, experts in the, you know, diff different areas say that if, if you're not happy 100% of the time, then something's wrong. So you need to go through all these processes and figure it out. And, and joy, uh, you know, foundationally, I believe it's personal fulfillment. If I had a most important number for myself, it would be a fulfillment quotient. And how is that elevating and growing over time? So I can go through healthy struggle, unhealthy struggle, uh, difficult times in, in any way, shape, or form, but I can be still elevating my fulfillment. Um, going forward, and so that—that's how I think about the difference. Um, how how would you how could you ever really be happy if you didn't understand the opposite of it? And and so that I think I think you're going to ebb and flow, but you can raise your underlying fulfillment and joy, 
um, continually uh, throughout, throughout one's life. That's my view. I'm just going to comment on this because this just struck me as you were talking. I'm sure someone has talked about this before, but it's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in that order, right? So the liberty part seems to, is ahead of the pursuit of happiness. So, and the liberty part seems like you would need to have a bit of at least some healthy struggle to maintain as we're, as we're learning today. We're going through that right now a lot. Yeah. We are, I agree. Any final thoughts as we finish? Well, as I look at the United States, and I do think about this globally, um, in the United States, I don't, I don't think we're generating 10, 15% of the value that we could. So imagine if we could start with a million families embracing value creation in, the, in, in their household as part of their operating methodology. What would be different and how infectious would that be? You know, imagine if we were creating 30% of the value that we could or 50% or 80%. Uh, we're not even close to, to what's possible here. So I'm, I'm really hoping you know, that we can get a lot of families embracing value creation and operationalizing it this way. And um, I want to live in a world that's amazing. And I, and I tell kids when I speak to these groups, you're gonna be running the world that I retire in and I want it to be incredible. And even though I'll never retire, at some point I'll age out, um, but I want it to be incredible. And even though I personally love dystopian future movies, I don't want to live in one of those things. That, that wouldn't be very good. So um, that's where I want to leave it. I mean, that's really the whole uh, purpose behind this book and, and a big part of my mission in life. Well, Lee Benson, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Lee Benson and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. Mm -hmm.